Just before I began at Theological College, I got an unexpected message on my answering machine. Uh, The message claimed it was from a bank. It was a bank I had an account with. And the message told me to call a certain number because they wanted to give me a laptop. Now, I thought, this sounds a bit too good to be true. I'm about to go to, to Theological College. I need a laptop. This is great. Uh, but then again, why would a bank want to give me a laptop? It, very strange. It must be a scam. But I did have an account with this bank, and so I thought it was worth, at the very least, talking to the bank, even if it was just to tell them that something dodgy was going on. So I opened up the yellow pages because it was back in those days. I didn't trust the number that was left in the message. I called the bank and I couldn't believe it. It was legit. I'd won a competition that I didn't even know I'd entered. It was something that they were doing to promote internet banking. bit ironic to say sign up for internet banking but you don't even have a computer. But that's what they thought they would do. And it was pretty good. And for a couple of years that laptop served me well uh, as I began my studies. Now, you've probably got a better story of unbelievably good news. That's what we're hearing today in Acts 13. Uh, What we're hearing today is the good news of Jesus, plain and simple. Uh, We're not going to look at all of Acts 13. We're going to focus in on Paul's preaching. When Paul gets an opportunity to tell people, Jew and Gentile, when he gets an opportunity to tell them about Jesus, what does he say? What's the good news he and we take to the world? And we're going to see how people respond. All right, so where are we uh, in the history, the journey recorded in Acts? Well, back in chapter 11, we heard about gospel partnership. And we've been thinking about our gospel partnership today. The young church in Antioch sent famine relief to the church in Jerusalem. And then at the end of chapter 12, after hearing about persecution in Jerusalem, James being executed, Peter being arrested, after that, the last sentence we read is, Barnabas and Saul have delivered the financial partnership to Jerusalem. And once they have finished up in Jerusalem, they return to Antioch. So chapter 13 begins, the focus is on Antioch, a city in Syria. In verse 2, we read that God, the Holy Spirit, tells them to commission, tells the church to commission Barnabas and Saul to take the gospel further into Gentile territory. And so they set off, they jump in a boat and they go to the island of Cyprus. Uh, We're not going to go into the details. We looked at it in Bible study. With the Cyprus story, I just want us to look at verse 9. In verse 9, Saul changes his name. This is where Saul stops being called Saul and starts being known as Paul. Uh, The change of names got nothing to do with his conversion. Jesus didn't give him a new name on the road to Damascus. In fact, Paul was his name all his life. Uh, It was the Roman or Latin equivalent to the Hebrew Saul. Uh, It's a bit like when people come to Australia, maybe they migrate from a country and they pick up an Anglo or an Aussie sounding name to use here. Paul and Saul, they're actually the same name. He's had it all his life. It's the, the Roman or Latin equivalent to the Hebrew Saul. Why the change here though? Why chapter 13 verse 9? 
Because this is where Paul's gone from majority Jewish territory to Gentile lands. In Acts, from this point on, he always goes by the name Paul to show that his mission is directed to the whole world, to Gentiles, to people who weren't Jewish by birth. And so he goes by the name that fits in that culture. And so after some time on the island of Cyprus, Paul and Barnabas, they keep travelling, they, they return to the mainland, so that's Cyprus, they return up onto the mainland and they go to a region which uh, was then known as Pisidia. Uh, these days it's part of Turkey. And they travel to another town named Antioch. So read with me from verse 13. So grab out your Bible, keep it open. We're going to read the rest of this chapter, starting at verse 13, Acts chapter 13 and verse 13. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. Now, this is a bit confusing there are two different towns called Antioch in the book of Acts. I did some research. There's actually 16 towns in the ancient world called Antioch. It's a little bit like Meribah. There's one just a little bit north and there's another one down in Victoria. You make sure you set your GPS to the right one. This Antioch is the one in Pisidia. The other one is Antioch in Syria. And that's a bit hard, isn't it? Pisidia and Syria also rhyme, but trust me, they are two very different places. When they get to Pisidian Antioch, they go straight into the Jewish synagogue. Uh, This synagogue is a mixed synagogue. There are both Jews and non-Jews who gather on the Sabbath. And we've come across this before. Uh, The term used for these non-Jewish people who believed in the God of Israel is God-fearers. They're also called in verse 16, Gentiles who worship God. What's the go with these God-fearers? They're people who, for some reason, have turned from idols. They now worship Yahweh alone, the God of Israel alone. They've put themselves under some of the law of Moses. They probably tried their best to live according to the Ten Commandments and the food laws and and stuff like that. But they weren't considered full converts because they hadn't been circumcised. And so although they were welcome in some synagogues, they weren't welcome in all and they definitely couldn't enter the Jerusalem temple to worship, sorry, to offer sacrifices and to worship. So most likely in Antioch, God-fearers were welcome to gather on the Sabbath, but they were, they were on the edge, never fully integrated, not completely welcomed into God's people. Paul, he goes into this synagogue, he's a Jew, and he's not just welcomed in, he's invited, he's given the platform. Hey, come on, mate, tell us what you've got to say. And he begins by speaking about something everyone in the synagogue would have agreed with. He starts off reminding them of God's purpose, God's faithfulness, God's initiative in saving his people Israel. So let's have a listen to what happens when Paul, he obviously was recognised as a teacher, what happened when Paul is invited to speak in that synagogue. Verse 15, Acts 13, 15. After the reading from the law and the prophets, so that's what we would call the Old Testament, uh, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them saying, brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the peoples, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, 
Uh, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness and he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. What Paul is doing is retelling the history of Israel. Today we've got a snapshot of 30 years of God's faithfulness to Kalula Christian College. This is thousands of years of God's faithfulness to Israel. Why is he doing this? Why would he think, oh, well, telling people about a thousand years or so of history, why would that be encouraging to these Jews and God-fearers in Pisidia? Couldn't he say something a bit more relevant? He's been invited to speak. What's rel- Why talk about history? Well, did you notice, it's not really the history of Israel. He doesn't say, oh, Israel did this and Israel did that. Every sentence, who's doing the action? Who's taking initiative? In every sentence, except for one, in every sentence, it's God. God is the faithful one. God is the one who chose Israel. God is the one who saved them from slavery in Egypt. The one act that isn't initiated by God is asking for a king. But even then, it's God who gives them Saul. That doesn't go so well. And then David. This is an encouragement, an exhortation for them because it's not history, it's about God. God is the same yesterday, today and forever. There's also a way that he tells the story of Israel, the story of what God has done, that's quite pertinent for these folk up in Antioch. Where does the story start? In Egypt. He mentions God's choice of Israel, which actually happened further away than Egypt, up in Mesopotamia, but he then gets on to, he really starts the story in Egypt. Now, why do you reckon he does this? Well, remember, where is he speaking? Paul's in a synagogue in Pisidian Antioch, thousands of kilometres away from Jerusalem, well outside the borders of Israel. These Jews and God-fearers, would feel a long way from God, a long way from God's promises. Just like the people in Egypt. And then where does the history finish? With David. In a moment, Paul's going to remind them of God's promises to David, the promise recorded in 2 Samuel 7, which says, David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever. Before me, your throne will be established forever. God promised David's throne would last forever. There's always to be a son of David on the throne of Israel. And so the big questions for these Jews and God fearers in Antioch is what's, what's God doing with us so far from the promised land? And is God going to keep his promises? Is, 
Is God going to restore and re-establish his kingdom? Will God raise up another king like David? Will there be a forever king? And Paul's astounding answer, his unbelievably good answer is yes. And not just yes, God will, but yes, God has. Verse 23, from this man's, from David's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Saviour Jesus as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I am not the one you are looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Paul mentions what John was on about to remind them about how amazing Jesus is. Even the great John the Baptist is unworthy to untie his sandals. But I reckon even despite hearing John's testimony, I reckon some in the synagogue will be at least scratching their head. Jesus, he's been gone for almost 20 years, is old news. I reckon some in the synagogue are thinking, he can't be the promised saviour because look around, we're still here. And, and the kingdom hasn't been restored to Israel. The Romans are still ruling over us. Now, Paul's about to go on and prove Jesus is the promised saviour. But before we, we go there, just, we just want to sit for a second and think, what have we heard about God? Because this isn't a history lesson. This is about our God. God is active in salvation. He is the one doing all the stuff. He promises, he chooses, he saves, he raises up his king. And even though some hearing that would not have been so sure about Jesus, this is still true for them and it's true for us today. They've just been reminded what their God is like. And if you put yourself in their shoes for a minute and they've been reminded what God is like, well then maybe, just maybe, He's right about Jesus. Paul is right about Jesus. But if if this is what God is like, well, how is Jesus the promised king? And, and what would that mean? And maybe some of those folk in the synagogue are not just scratching their heads a bit confused, but maybe some of them are starting to get angry. There's no way Jesus could be the saviour. Because that's how people responded to Jesus himself. Verse 26. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath, the words they would have just heard. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who travelled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. Just like with his retelling of Israel's history, Paul's emphasis is on God's action and God's faithfulness. Even the crucifixion of Jesus is God's plan, God's action. Did you hear that in verse 27? Even before he gets to the the mention of the resurrection, Jesus' rejection 
by the Jewish leaders fulfills God's word. You could even say the cross is God's faithfulness because it fulfills it fulfills the words of the prophets. But which words of the prophets? Uh, Paul might be thinking about a whole bunch, but he goes on to quote a few. Verse 33, we tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son. Today, I have become your father. This is a quote from Psalm 2. I'm going to put some of the verses up on the screen. Psalm 2 is an ancient song from the time of King David. In Psalm 2, God promises he will enthrone his son. He will install his king. And he'll do this despite the the raging of the nations, the the Gentile kings. How is Psalm 2 fulfilled in Jesus? Well, Psalm 2 says God's king has to be rejected. God's saviour has to be rejected before he can be crowned. And this was fulfilled in Jesus. Even though Jesus was rejected, God promised to raise his king up. Just like he'd raised up David from being a, a little shepherd boy to being king of the nation. God raised up Jesus, not from being a shepherd, but from the grave. Verse 34 God raised him, Jesus, from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. Now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But... But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Uh, The third quote, so there's three quotes from what we call the Old Testament. The third quote is from Psalm 16. Uh, You might be familiar with this quote because Peter quotes it on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. Paul's point is exactly the same as Peter's. Uh, This quote is uh, saying, well, Psalm 16 can't be talking about David because David's body is very much decayed. But who else then could be God's holy or faithful one? Who, who is David talking about in Psalm 16? It must be God's promised king. It must be Jesus. And when you put together this quote, this quote from Psalm 16, and the quote that we have in verse 34, which is from Isaiah 55, now you can't see this in English, but the you in verse 34 is Plural, it says, I'm going to give all of you the blessings promised to David. So when you put these two quotes together, Paul's point is not only was Jesus himself raised from the dead, but Jesus' resurrection isn't only for himself. It's not just only that Jesus' body won't see decay. His resurrection brings God's promised blessing to yous, to everyone who receives Jesus. Remember the question that would have been on the mind of those folk in the synagogue? If God's been active in salvation, if he's been faithful in the past, what what about now? When is God going to restore his kingdom? When is he going to keep all of those promises we've just heard? 
Paul's unbelievably good news is that in Jesus, God has. God has raised up a king. There is now a son of David who is reigning on David's throne, not in Jerusalem because that was never the goal. Jesus is reigning on David's heavenly throne. And because Jesus is risen and reigning, he now pours out the sure hope and blessing of his reign. What are the the blessings that God promised? Well, it's forgiveness and freedom. Verse 38, this is where Paul brings it home. Verse 38, therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Now, this mention of forgiveness of sins, it feels a bit like a gear change. I mean, Paul's been talking about promises and kingdoms. What on earth has this got to do with sin and the law of Moses? Well, part of the answer is what's recorded in Acts 13 is a cut-down version of what Paul actually said. He would have spoken for more than just a couple of minutes. But I think we get a hint of what he might have said with the mention of John's baptism. Uh, Paul must have mentioned how Israel had turned from God, failed to keep the law of Moses, and how that led to the exile and Babylon and eventually the Romans ruling over them. And so the good news is that God offers forgiveness and freedom. After more than a thousand years of trying, no one in Israel had been able to perfectly keep God's law. And for the the God-fearers in that synagogue, it's not just their sin that keeps them from God, but the law itself, because through the law they could never draw near to God. They would never be fully welcomed into God's people. In Jesus, God offers forgiveness and freedom. Forgiveness and the other word he uses is justification. What's that mean? Easy way to think of it, just as if I'd never sinned. That's what God offers. The problem is no one in Israel had done that. Everyone in Israel, all the Gentiles had sinned. They were not justified. And so the offer of freedom and forgiveness is unbelievably good news. A new, a justified relationship with God, sins forgiven. But we've already heard an ominous word, haven't we? The Jewish leaders, when Jesus was around, when forgiveness and freedom was walking in front of them, they didn't recognize Jesus. And there's the same challenge for those in Antioch. Will they find Jesus unbelievable? Verse 40, take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe even if someone told you. This is a serious warning. Don't scoff, don't fail to believe what God's done, because to do so is deadly. You'll perish. Initially, those who heard respond by being intrigued. 
Some people are convinced and convicted and begin trusting in Jesus. And Paul's invited to speak again at the synagogue next week. Verse 42. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. But seven days later, they changed their tune. Verse 34, on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. You get the feeling the Jewish leaders weren't really expecting this. They weren't expecting their nice synagogue to be overrun by Gentiles wanting to hear about Jesus. We don't want those people in here. And so there is arguments and abuse. Get out of here. And and Paul and Barnabas say, well, that's it then. If you're going to join the scoffers, if you're going to reject God's promises and God's king, then we'll leave you in your unbelief. We're not going to come back to this synagogue again. Verse 46. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When Paul and Barnabas say, we now turn to the Gentiles, it sounds like a big announcement. But haven't they been preaching to Gentiles for ages? And don't they keep going to Jewish synagogues and preaching to Jews after this? Well, this isn't some massive turning point in God's plans. Paul and Barnabas are are washing their hands. In the moment, they're going to shake the dust off their feet, as Jesus told uh, the 70 uh, in, in their mission. Uh, They're just washing their hands of this particular synagogue who've rejected Jesus. And since they've rejected Jesus, they don't think they're worthy of eternal life. They don't think they're worthy of the kingdom of God. The two words pretty much mean the same thing. Well, they're going to continue preaching Christ to Gentiles, both here in Antioch, and they're going to continue their ministry into areas where there are very few Jews, sorry, very few Jews and loads of Gentiles. Uh, which is what they do. Verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honoured the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. So loads of Gentiles believed. Once again, it's God's action. Those who were appointed believed. And even after Paul and Barnabas are persecuted and kicked out, the disciples they leave in Antioch continue to live joyfully for Jesus. Verse 50. But the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and and with the Holy Spirit. As Paul and Barnabas leave, uh, there are two very distinct groups in Antioch. There are those in the synagogue. They know what God has done. They know the scriptures and the promises God has made. But they find Jesus unbelievable. They scoff at Jesus. They scoff at the idea that God would allow his Holy One to be crucified. They find the resurrection of God's Holy One unbelievable. That's that's one group. 
And then there's the disciples, those who've trusted in Jesus, who know God's forgiveness and freedom from the law of Moses, the law that ended up being a burden too heavy to carry that actually separated Gentiles from the kingdom of God, and they find Jesus to be good news, unbelievably good. Do you see yourself in either of those two groups? It's possible to know lots about the Bible, but miss Jesus. To not realise you need forgiveness. Plenty of people come to church and think, well, sinners, yeah, I know sinners, they're they're out there somewhere. But Jesus died and rose again to bring you, us all, the promised blessing of forgiveness and freedom. And just as Paul and Barnabas said in that synagogue, the promise comes with a warning, a warning that if you scoff at Jesus, you will perish. And because this is still true, it's why followers of Jesus are called to continue to speak the unbelievably good news. It's one of the great things we've been able to hear today is our partnership in the gospel through CCC, what began as what sounds like quite a closed thing, a way for Christians to keep free from the world and to keep in their little huddle, has opened its doors and said, no, Salvation is for the world and we want lots of people to hear the gospel uh, through our college. That's what we're doing as a church, isn't it? We're called to speak unbelievably good news. That's the point of verse 47. Jesus came as a light to the to the world, to the Gentiles, not just to, to Jews. It's too small a thing for him just to, to deal with the nation of Israel. He is the king of the world. And God's promise is that through him, salvation will go to the ends of the earth, from Antioch in Pisidia, even to our region, to Gympie. As God's church, how are we fulfilling this call on us? As we turn to prayer, I'm going to be asking God to work in our hearts, to give us the same heart as Paul and Barnabas, that he'd be working out his saving plans through us. Please join with me as we pray. Father God, we praise you because in the past you've acted. You chose Israel, you rescued them, you raised up David, you made promises. And we praise you because you fulfilled those promises in Jesus. Thank you that in Jesus there is forgiveness and freedom. Help us realise how unbelievably good this is. Fill us with joy and your Holy Spirit. We pray again for those we know and love, those in our region who don't believe in Jesus, who reject him. In your, in your kindness, make us lights to our friends and family, shining out the hope of forgiveness and freedom. And in your mercy, may you be pleased to save. Amen.